on July 24, 1857, in the middle of the 10th anniversary celebration, Brigham Young learned that the United States government was sending an army to Utah. Over the course of the next weeks and months, the Latter-day Saints would respond to what they viewed as an unprovoked act of aggression against their families and their faith. On this episode, we will explore the Latter-day Saints' response to the approach of Johnston's army. I'm Nate Olson, and this is Adventures in Mormon History. In August of 1857, Brigham Young delivered a speech to the saints assembled at the tabernacle as he contemplated the army force marching closer and closer to their mountain home. He bitterly remembered how over the last 20 years, the Latter-day Saints had been brutally victimized by armed bands from Ohio to Missouri to Illinois. He saw the approach of federal troops as simply the latest armed force to set out to destroy them. But he decided that this time would be different. He roared from the pulpit. The last mob has come to afflict this people that ever has come. It is a pretty bold step for a little handful of men here in the mountains to think they can cope with the powerful government of the United States. Upon natural principles, we cannot. But we can fight them in the name of God Almighty. And with his aid, we can keep them off from us. Let it be treason or not treason. The Lord God Almighty and the elders of Israel being our helpers, they shall not come into this territory. I will fight them, and I will fight all hell rather than tamely submit to such outrageous wrongs and oppression. He then set out in broad brush strokes his strategy to counter the army. He declared, If they come here, I shall lay this building in ashes. I shall lay my dwelling in ashes. I shall lay my mills in ashes. I shall cut every shrub and every tree in this valley. How do you think they will feel when they come here and not find a house, or a barn, or a stick, or a board? He then joked, Don't you think the new governor will feel nice to come here and reign as governor? How pretty would a United States court look here? And who would they put on trial? Well, one another. And they would be trying which of them can be the biggest damned rascal. (laughs) Excuse me for swearing. He then called on his listeners to stand with him. Now suppose you were brought to the test. Suppose they send 50,000 troops or 100,000 troops against us. How many is there of the elders of Israel and this community that will go with me? Do as I do and take the road I travel. Dare you all go into the mountains? At the top of their voices, the congregation shouted, Yes, we are ready. As a rough outline, here was the strategy. Brigham Young looked to the Russian scorched earth resistance that had destroyed Napoleon's invading force in 1812. If Johnston's army continued marching toward the Salt Lake Valley, the Nauvoo Legion, that is the Latter-day Saint militia, would slow their progress by burning Fort Bridger and Fort Supply on the Wyoming Plains. Then they would burn the grass to deny the army fodder for its animals. If that failed, they would retreat to the fortifications of Echo Canyon leading into Salt Lake City. Colonel N.V. Jones, who was a former Las Vegas lead miner, supervised the construction of defensive fighting positions on both sides of the canyon. He described in a letter to Brigham Young how men with rocks and firearms can make a great destruction of our enemies without being in the least danger themselves. The only fear is that the enemy will not move through this canyon. While the Nauvoo Legion put up active resistance, 
the saints in Salt Lake and Utah Valley would evacuate their homes and move south. The Minutemen of the Legion would then set fire to their communities, their crops, and their homes, leaving Johnston's army nothing to sustain itself. General Daniel H. Wells, commander of the Nauvoo Legion, called a council of war on the 3rd of October, 1857. Among the challenges Daniel Wells faced was to keep the different elements of the Nauvoo Legion working together. This could be difficult at times, especially between Captain Porter Rockwell and Major Lot Smith. Both men were energetic and aggressive, with what the Army today would call an appropriate bias towards action. Lot Smith described their relationship in this way. Porter Rockwell and I were good friends on the following basis. I did just as I pleased, and he regularly damned me for it. The council voted to attack the supply wagons of Johnston's army, to burn the grass, and if they could, to stampede the army's animals. Porter Rockwell and Major McAllister were given the mission of burning the grass on the roads and routes into the valley, starting at Soda Springs. Major Lot Smith, who led a cavalry regiment of 40 riders, was assigned a dangerous task. He wrote, General Wells, looking at me as straight as possible, asked if I could take a few men and turn back the wagon trains that were on the road or burn them. I replied I thought I could do just what he told me to. Immediately after the Council of War, he led his force towards Sandy Fork in present-day Wyoming. After miles and miles of hard riding, they noticed a large cloud of dust at a distance up the river about 14 miles away. Lot Smith sent out scouts on a reconnaissance mission. They returned with a report of 26 large army freight wagons loaded with supplies for the campaign. Sensing a target of opportunity, Lot Smith led his men toward the wagon train. He wrote, We came up to the train, but discovered that the Teamsters were drunk. These Teamsters were civilian contractors driving the wagons. While working with the Army, they were not subject to military law or discipline, and were described by the officials traveling with them as a disreputable crew of St. Louis wharf rats and thieves, thugs, and worthless characters. However, rather than attack immediately, Lot Smith decided to exercise tactical patience. He wrote, Knowing that drunken men were easily excited and always ready to fight, and remembering my positive orders not to hurt anyone except in self-defense, we remained in ambush until after midnight. He realized, however, that the wagon train was much larger than previously reported. There were 52 large freight wagons in two lines packed closely together. About midnight, when the Teamsters had laid down to sleep, Major Smith wrote, I concluded that we would be a match for them, and so advanced to their camp. <laughs> Spreading out his men at intervals to make their numbers seem larger than they really were, Major Smith rode into the wagon train and in a loud voice called for the captain. The wagon leader, John Dawson, stepped out and asked what he wanted. Smith recalled, I told him I had a little business with him. He inquired the nature of the business, and I replied by requesting him to get all of his men and their private property as quickly as possible out of the wagons, for I meant to put a little fire in them. Dawson, visibly shocked, exclaimed, For God's sake, don't burn the trains! I said, it was for God's sake that I was going to burn them. 
Major Smith then ordered the Teamsters into custody. One of his raiders, James Parshall Terry, tasked with rounding up the terrified and drunken men, later remembered, I never saw a scareder lot in my life until they found out they was not going to be hurt. Then they laughed and said they was glad the wagons was going to be burnt as it meant they would not have to work anymore. Terry remembered one wagon in particular that was loaded with tar rope. It was said the rope was to hang Brigham Young and his Danites. Working quickly, Lot Smith's raiders set fire to the wagons. Terry remembered how the tar rope, along with the rest of the wagons, made a grand light. The country was lit up for miles around. Then, as suddenly as they had appeared, Lot Smith and his raiders turned and rode off into the night. Terry would campaign with Lot Smith throughout the conflict. In his memoirs, he paid his commanding officer this tribute. I want to say, in honor to Lot Smith, that he was a boy with the boys. He always shared what he had with them and fared just as they did. He was one to do more than his part in standing guard or anything else that needed to be done. I never traveled or would wish to travel with a better officer than he was. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Adventures in Mormon History. I'm your host, Nate Olson.